Hey everybody, this is Just Souls with Brent McIntosh of the McIntosh Group at Remax River City. I'm Brent Griffiths. He is Brent McIntosh. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you, Brent? Fine, thank you. It's all about dollars and cents, isn't it? It is. And and today that's what we're going to talk about. Money. Can you believe it? I do believe it. And I do believe we've got a great guest on to talk about cash. We do. And and this topic, you know, is, is often considered taboo. And I don't think parents talk about it enough with their kids. I don't think schools talk about it well enough. Um, so how do you learn? Like, how do you learn about money unless you do have somebody who's willing to talk to you about it? And I think most people, unfortunately, learn from the school of hard knocks. And we both know that that's an expensive school yes. to learn from. Yep. Um, so today we have somebody that can maybe help us out without having to learn it the hard way and the expensive way. So I thought to myself, let's bring in an expert. And we're joined with somebody who, who I think is extremely good with numbers. He's my former accountant and a really good friend, David Dorward. David, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Brent. And uh, good, to, good to hear your voice, Brent. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And you and I have talked money for years, ever since we met. I think we met in 2002. So 19 years ago. Does that sound right? Yeah, about that. Uh, yeah, I was... Uh, what, 33-ish years of age, and you were just a little older than that? <laughs> and I, I, and yeah, and I was uh, just finishing high school. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm sure you've seen it all. I mean, you were an accountant for a long time here in Edmonton, and you still, I know, work with numbers and clients. And, and I'm sure you've seen everything from those clients who are in the red all the way to clients that have millions of dollars in the bank. And, and so I thought you, you could use your insight to help some of our audience with maybe a general set of rules that might help them get to some financial freedom. You know, Brent, money is just a simple way of making barter easier. And people need to, to get maybe back to the basics of what money really is. And, and I, that's why I made that statement. That's you good. know, somebody has something and they want something else. And instead of having to exchange that at the time, somebody might have a cow and need a bunch of grain and, and so they, they give the, the cow to somebody and that's how it worked in the old days and they get a bunch of grain, but maybe they don't need all that grain. So now they got to take some grain and find somebody that wants to, to barter for some clothes and money just makes that happen a little easier because you can take it, the money in and then use it when you need it. Um, and so that it, it has to be talked about. It isn't talked about enough. And there's so many other aspects uh, of that money, but that's probably the, the basics of what money is all about. I love it. There's a line, and I'm going to quote Forrest Gump here. Um, he says, Lieutenant Dan got me invested in some kind of fruit company. So then I got a call from him saying, we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One last thing. And so before we talk about buying, you know, Apple stock is, is what he got invested in. Um, let's talk with the basics. And if you could give an 18 year old, perhaps somebody who's just graduating from high school and just about to start life as an adult, um, and give them some advice about money, what would it be? Where would we start, David? Start forming ideas that will turn into actions and actions that will become habits. I find that uh, people who are successful later in life started those habits when they're younger. And the earlier that they started them, the younger that they are in my office talking about doing more of the things that they want to do instead of having to spend time gathering money to do uh, those things because they have enough money to do those things now. So start start small, 
Don't be afraid of how big the magnitude is and learn, 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 take courses and learn things. We're going to jump a little bit all, you know, all over the place here, but let's start. Should a young person get a credit card? You know, when you say young, that means uh, 18 or 19 in Canada. Um, mm-hmm. In Alberta, it's 18. In other provinces, it can be uh, 19. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that uh, is legal, um, that uh, there's a law that says that they have to be that age. Um, and, and so, you know, the answer is yes, but that's if they have the support to be able to teach them the things that they need to know, the ins and outs and the very, the very dangers of having uh, a credit card. If the reason for having a credit card, and you hear it most often, is to establish a, a credit, uh, you know, kind of a, a starting to establish your credit and get a credit score, you can still do that, by the way, uh, being uh, uh, having a credit card on a parent's card. So you can have a limit on a credit card, a parent's card, and you get, because you're a uh, person that has a credit card in somebody else's account, you can actually get a credit score from that and not have the dangers and temptations of having the card yourself. So what, that's what, another way to accomplish some of those things. What about these prepaid ones? Do you still, is that a good way to start where you've maybe thrown a thousand dollars in and to, to spend the money, you got to at least have it in there. Do you like those? Very smart. Okay. Very smart. That's like a debit card. You know, it's essentially a, a debit card uh, kind of arrangement and that's a, a wonderful, smart way to do it. Absolutely. What about, um, about buying a car? Should they buy a car or lease a car? I always say that if you're the kind of person that wants to keep a car for six to 10 years, probably you should buy it. Uh, when I've run the numbers numerous times, it works out to be like that. If you are the kind of person that considers a car to be a commodity that you, you want to, uh, you know, you have to buy a new jacket every few years, you get a new car every couple of years or three years, it's probably more economical to lease. It's a little bit dangerous to lease. I find generally that leasing is more expensive. One of the problems can be the little uh, side uh, small things in a lease. And that can include such things as estimates on kilometers that you drive. And if you over exceed those kilometers, so you can be fearful of that and then you're worried about it all year long. But if you exceed that, you have extra costs to pay in the lease. Yeah. So there are those little danger things to watch for. So, when should somebody buy a home? Loaded well, question coming been, from the realtor. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've always been a person who uh, thinks that a person should buy a home as soon as they can, um, because then you, you gain from any uptick in the valuation over time. And generally speaking, homes go up. Of course you have a downside if it goes down, but that it tends to be a short term scenario that you can wait out, especially if you're young. Right, But you have to know all of the costs that come with it. So you have to make sure you're making that decision intelligently. It's not just the mortgage, you know, it's the insurance and the maintenance and the things you need for the house and the taxes and utilities and and the operations and and the stove replacement and all of those kind of things. So you don't want to enter into it lightly, but as soon as you possibly can, I think it's a good idea. I agree. And I mean, that's what I've been preaching for a long, long time, obviously, but uh, it's always nice to hear somebody else, uh, an expert, so to speak, to say the same thing. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously, I think it starts with a budget, uh, which is what we're going to get to next is why should somebody budget? Well, can I add to that a bit? Uh, oh, sure. What I would like, what I'd like to say is, uh, what I'd like to answer is a question that says, why should I budget and count? 
Um, and and they're they're very similar. I, I say to people, you know, you you keep track of records in a business, but let's apply that to a personal scenario as well. Keeping track of track of uh, financial numbers is not just doing it, but it's looking at it after and sitting down and putting the phone away in another corner of the room and saying, okay, I see a line and it says insurance. And wow, I paid 543 bucks last year for insurance. And then you stop and you say, okay, what can I do in that area? Let's call three brokers and see if I can get that down to 450 bucks. So it's the activity that can happen as a result of looking at the numbers, which causes you then to think I can get that down to 540. What have we just done? We've just created a budget line item just for insurance. So now we have a target. We have a budget for next year. So it's the activity that happens as a result of looking at numbers that's more important than the actual keeping of the numbers. But if you don't look at the numbers, you don't know those kinds of things. I'll give you an example. I had somebody come in and they were, uh, this person earned north of $100,000 a year and, and so does the person's wife. And she came in in the second visit too. And so they, they were bringing in over $200,000 into their home and yet they had huge credit card debt. And they never did any tracking. And so I got them on a system over the next six months where they actually tracked what they did. And they found out that they were eating out enormous amount, uh, spending enormous amounts of money on eating out. Um, and so they changed that. And within two years, they had paid down all that debt because they made some significant changes as a result of knowing uh, what those numbers were. They counted uh, the numbers first, and then they budgeted based on what they learned from the county. And they, they were keeping a, a balance or they were keeping credit card debt at the time? Yeah. They, yeah. They had, uh, they had $65,000 in consumer debt on credit cards and wow. they were paying basically the interest on that every single month and unable to grind it down. And, and over that, over that period of time after that, they were able to cut out, uh, take, take food to, to work and not eat every single day and not meet every Friday together as a couple at one of the best clubs around mm-hmm. and have wine and drinks and all the rest of that kind of stuff, which was very, very expensive. They just didn't really know that it was that expensive because they didn't right. keep track before. It's fascinating then, in our place because we have a 15 year old that we're trying to teach budget and we're teach the two words of want and need and how there's a difference between the two and it's easy to spend it. It's not so easy to save it. And as we go through the talk with the 15-year-old, we start to recognize that, you know, that still, that still affects somebody in their 50s and 60s too, David. Yeah, absolutely. That is very, very true. Those are it's a great. lifetime pursuit. Oh, yeah. Those are great words. In my, in my rough notes here for, for this, today's podcast, I had written down two notes, and one was want and need. And, and um, because I think that in our society, that, that that's the biggest trouble or problem is that people don't know the difference between those two words, that, that they use the, the word need all the time um, and, and don't recognize that, that it's actually a want, that they, they, didn't, they don't need the latest and greatest technology or, or did, like you guys say, eat out every, um, each meal and, and that that's a want. And there's nothing wrong with wants. But, but, yeah, back in back in the day, Janice and I uh, were fortunate to live in a time when there weren't credit cards um, early on in our relationship. And we actually had the envelope method where every single month we would take X number of dollars and put it in an envelope and it had on there eating out and it was $18. Yeah. And, and so what we had to do when we looked in that envelope and saw there was $18 and we were about to spend at the time $4 of that, 
we stopped and thought about it. That's one of the dangers of credit cards is that it's so instantaneous. Boom. I can put it in, it's spent, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. But is it a, is it a real need? If it's a want and you have to go back to that envelope and look, you might just ponder for a second, but if you have a credit card, you might just make that bad decision. So it's a little harder to control when you have that instant ability to buy things. My second note was uh, the words compound interest. <laughs> and and um, that was something I, I was fortunate enough to be brought up by a banker. And so uh, uh, I, at six years old, I could explain compound interest. But um, I, I know that most people don't have, have a good grasp of that. And compound interest can be your friend and compound interest can be your enemy. <laughs> Yep, that's for sure. Um, let's get back on track a little bit here. Is is debt okay? Is there such thing uh, as good debt? Well, there is, sure. And and some is is what I would put in the category of necessary, educational debt. Um, it's educational debt is going to pay itself back because you're going to be able to earn more money in theory in your life after you have that education in place. Um, debt for a vehicle debt for a house. I mean, those are the big three uh, that people consider when they, when they have debt. So some debt is, is okay and necessary in life and good. We're going to maybe hopefully slide into financial leverage later on. Uh, yeah. And, and we can talk a little bit more of that in depth, but yes, sure. Um, the, the correct part of debt is, is okay. There's very dangerous debt out there already. I hate to pick on credit cards again, but you, know, you can have interest rates of 18, 19% on credit cards or worse. So That's you right. got to really be careful and know what, know what you're paying, know where the dangers are. Is my bank my friend? It uh, can be. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the old days of personal relationships with a banking person uh, are, are not the same uh, today, but I see resurgence actually in some ways. Banks are finding out that, and credit unions and whatnot are finding out it's a very competitive world. Um, if I was a younger person wanting to seek out relationship, I would search around until I found somebody who cared about me. And uh, then I would uh, talk to them. I would phone them. I would even take them to lunch. Because you see, when you build a relationship with somebody at a bank, you get to know them. You're going to be in a situation where when you need them, they're going to be your friend. And friends get stuff done. And so while well, you don't need them, that's the time to get to know them. And so manage that relationship rather than just hope that you can find one when you wander in there and need a bank loan the next day for a car. What a great piece of advice. Um, real estate or the stock market, David? Well, they're different. Uh, although for tax purposes, they're both called passive income. Mm-hmm. Real estate certainly different because it, it requires you to be more hands-on. Uh, whereas the real estate is, or sorry, the stock market is more a situation where it's uh, hands off and you can just invest and then go about your, your daily activities. You can do both uh, because you can, in a stock market scenario, seek out stocks that are real estate backed, either by buying a company that does real estate or a mutual fund that invests in real estate. If, if you're the kind of person that doesn't mind at all being involved in, in the uh, aspects of real estate, and there's a huge amount to learn there, uh, then you should uh, go ahead. Uh, it, it, it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, earn better than average returns that you can see at a bank or in, or in, in an investment and lots of other comparables. Um, but it, it requires you to 
be involved with hands-on. As I said, you have to know what's what's happening with the property that you're purchasing. Is it commercial? Is it uh, is it a residence? Um, who are your tenants? There's there's a myriad of things to to uh, learn there. It's fascinating. I love that area. If somebody's interested, then I would advise them to to really get involved in that and and learn uh, as much as they can about it. Well, let's talk about what, what you hinted at earlier there. Um, what is financial leverage? Okay, well, uh, you know, let's just say that the next door neighbor needed a wheelbarrow. And, uh, and, and so they said to you, I, I need a wheelbarrow and I'll pay you $150 for the whole day of getting a wheelbarrow. So if you went down to Home Depot and got a wheelbarrow and rented it for 100 bucks, and you came back, and you gave it to them and they paid you 150 and you paid Home Depot 100 you'd make $50 and 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 so that's exactly what financial leverage is it's just that the wheelbarrow is money mm. and so in the Home Depot is a bank so you go to the bank and you get 150 uh, you go to the bank sorry and you pay them $100 for something that could be a, a, a bundle of money. It doesn't matter how big it is. And you give it to not the neighbor, but to an investment and you get $150 back from that investment and you pay the bank the hundred dollars, then you're ahead $50. No. Yeah. Right. So that's exactly the same as is doing the wheelbarrow. It's just that people get a little bit scared because there's that work called money involved. But the reality is most people would do the wheelbarrow one, but they would hesitate with the the money one. Right. You could the neighbor might abscond with the with the wheelbarrow. Somebody might abscond with the money too. Right. You know, you might not get your money from the neighbor, and you'd still have to pay the Home Depot. You yeah. might not get your money from the investment, but you still have to pay the bank. But the aspects are all the the uh, virtually the same. So essentially, what it is is you are going to get some money and they are going to charge you for the usage of that money. If you're going to be able to put the money somewhere else in an investment, and that income is going to be bigger than what you're paying, you've just leveraged the opportunity to do that right. uh, into something that you didn't have prior to doing. It. So I sell an hour worth of my time. I get $100 for, for my time. Somebody else sells the opportunity for other people to use the money and they make money doing that. It's just a different, I sell time. Somebody else sells the use of money. But you better have the hundred dollars for that wheelbarrow. No, just in case your neighbor doesn't pay you the 150. That's exactly right. So, you know, this is something that you do again, as I've said several times, education has to be a huge part of this. You have to know exactly what, what you're doing. And, and you generally don't do this unless uh, you're, you're not risking the, the house that you live in and you're not risking the car that you drive around. Well, that um, was what I was going to ask you next. You're yeah. only doing it if, if, if there is a way to do it that is prudent and proper. And now you, you really what you're doing is introducing the concept of risk and, and what risk you were tolerant of accepting with respect to the transaction that you're doing. Because, I mean, you could remortgage your house and leverage your house for an investment, but if you lose everything in your investment, is it worth it to lose the house? 
precisely the problem. And you do not want to fall into that kind of extent of, of risk acceptance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and especially, and, and, you know, cause I, I see that a lot. There is some, some more aggressive investment companies that will say to their clients or, or, or try to attract new business by, you know, remortgage your house and, and invest with us, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that you're, you, you know, I guess, especially when you're looking at the stock market you have to be prepared to lose that money. And are you prepared to lose your house? You absolutely have to, you're right. And, but let's create a scenario where somebody for, for whatever reason has their house paid off and they they have a $400,000 house and they are 42 years of age and they expect to work for the next 25 years. So they might be able to take $50,000 mortgage on that house. They still have $350,000 equity in it, put okay. that $50,000 into the stock market and invest it long-term and very safe secure investments that have very, very little risk, they might earn 6% over time on that, and they might pay the bank three and a half. So they're making a leverage on that without risking the home. And if anything goes wrong over that period of time, they have 25 years of earning potential to make up for the, what they've lost. Um, th- there's some different investments that you can make these days um, that, that offer some benefits. TFCAs uh, and, uh, or TFSAs and, and RSPs. Um, maybe you can explain what, what these are. Yeah, tax-free savings accounts, essentially, and RS- RSPs. So the, the thing I want to say is that these are investments. They're investments, they're investments, they're investments. If a person had $500 in an investment pool, not RSP and not TFSA, and they had $500 in an RSP and $500 in a TFSA, that really should be looked at as holistically as $1,500 in investments, albeit two of them are in tax-oriented buckets. Mm-hmm. But it's really $1,500. I find that people will only talk about the $500 they have not in the TFSA or the RSP and and not even discuss the RSP right. or the TFSA. Like it didn't even matter. It didn't count for anything. But it really should be discussed holistically as a group of things. A TFSA is simply, it's money that, that there has, that's been taxed. It's your money. But the government says, you know what? You can earn as much on that as you want in terms of income, we'll never tax the income on it. So your highest potential value, uh, highest potential return on investment for my, for me and advising should be in the TFSA. Because if you can earn 9% on something and it's inside the TFSA, then go ahead because that 9% that you're earning will always be tax-free. An RSP is a little different. There's been no tax on it. The tax is coming later. So you put money in there and it's never been taxed. Uh, and so the government's going to take their uh, slice of, of that later on when you pull it out of the RSP. So RSP is definitely more long-term. If I had, I would have both if, if I had a choice between those two. Yeah. My longer term savings would be the RSP because you really don't want to pull it out until you're older and you don't have any other income sources. Right. Whereas a TFSA is more short and medium term money or emergency money. And the, there's a max though, typically for the TFSA. Is there not for contribution each year? 
Yes, and unfortunately, I don't have that data right in front of me, and so I'm not going to throw out an exact number. But yeah, it's uh, you can easily put that into into Google and find out what the limits are. It, it, you don't want to get it overly complicated. It started a number of years ago, and if a person's never done it, you get to put in as much as you could have put in back in those years. And and there's I keep hearing, and maybe I'm false information, but that they're going to take that away, that they're going to get rid of the, those TFSAs. Is that true? Yeah, you hear rumblings of that. Every every budget, uh, it was put in by conservatives and liberals might not want it because it was conservative principle. Personally, I think there would be a big, big pushback on it. I, I don't see it going away. I, I don't think it's it's really harming our economy any a lot to have people have that that freebie of no tax on the on the income that it earns. It's it's very restricted. I mean, you can't lend money to a buddy of yours and have your buddy pay you forty percent, and that's tax free. Right. Uh, there there's pretty severe restrictions on what can go into it. it. Has to be a registered product, and and therefore the government has pretty good controls uh, over it. Um, as we talk about money, I think the, the, we'll, we'll finish up here. We'll wrap it up with talking about retirement and how much money does somebody need to retire? Is there a formula? Oh boy. Um, that, yeah. the, the question that you just asked is, is one that is going to take the longest. I know we're, we're tight on time. No, no, that's, uh, so I'll yeah. just, uh, I'll just say this is that I, I approach this much differently than, than most people that talk to people about money do what I, what I like to do is practical things. And so I create a spreadsheet. I take a person's age today and I say, no matter what age you are today, I'm going to make a spreadsheet that has a column being one year. Most people have seen a column on a computer like Excel or whatever. And so I go out to whatever age they want, 85, 90, and I'll go to 105 years old if they want doesn't matter. I'll make a column for every year. And then I'm going to put on there and spend a bit of time and I'm going to put on there all their assets today on. There. And then I'm going to force them to say, okay, I need to know your incomes and I need to know your expenses. So I did this for a person who was 62 years of age and her husband just had passed away sadly. And so she didn't know what was going to happen exactly to her life. And so we took all her assets and put them on that spreadsheet in the first column. And then we put every year and when she got when she forecast to be, she wanted to work till she was 68 and then we cut her income off. And then she started her RSPs when she was 70 and we did this on the spreadsheet and we did that. And the home costs and the driving costs and the travel, I try to limit that down to about six items so it doesn't get crazy. And we're not talking about picky small stuff. We, we get big numbers. I just want to know is your home, home operations cost you 6,000 or 16,000 is your travel going to be 2000 or 28,000. So bigger numbers. And I put all that in the spreadsheet and I go right to the end there. And I say, okay, when you think you're going to die, which is 95, you're going to have 20 bucks in the bank, or you're going to have $650,000 in the bank, what, whatever you're going to have. It's reality. And we do that really quickly. And then we say, okay, now let's back up and go through each year and throw in a new car every eight years. Let's throw in some replacement of the siding in the house in 12 years. In 15 years, let's throw in the sale of that house. So it becomes of now a financial asset instead of one that's not productive. And you play the games and modeling with that. So people get a comfort level. And for that lady, it was that she could do some work in her house because she did find out that when she was 95, she still had money in the bank. And so she was able to spend $45,000 that year 
feel comfortable that that 45 she spent wasn't going to bankrupt her when she was 95. So no, there's no formula. It's individually based because it varies so much in what a person wants to accomplish for the rest of their life, no matter the age they are when they start thinking about these kinds of things. But it needs to have some work, and that's the format that I use, and it's productive for people, and it helps them to see what's ahead of them. When should I think about that? Is there is there a time now. that's ever too yeah, early? Now. Yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's years never ago. too early. I've done this with people who are 40, and mm-hmm. and, and it's harder for them because right. they don't see things the same as a 55-year-old. Yeah. Uh, but it there's there's never a time. It's it's fun. And and I have people that renew their own one every single year. They send it to me that I've done it with them for 15 years, and they send it to me annually, and they say, can you just take a boo at our worksheet and see if you see any blips? And I kind of quickly look back, and I say, oh, I noticed that your equity was supposed to be – you were supposed to inherit to your kids – hundred thousand dollars and now you're only inheriting them six thousand what happened well we went on a couple of generous trips worldwide trips or investments didn't earn as much as we had forecast or whatever happened um and then that just those are the changes that get made in that and that's that's part of life a plan is meant to be changed we talk about we talk about it being you know it's never too early but is it too late i don't think it's too late and no i no it's not too late because No, I mean, I've had these decisions made later on in people's life, and it made the difference between having to stay with a child versus getting into a senior's uh, home, and then whether they paid a lot of money for a really, really nice feature senior's home or whether it was a basic government senior's home. So, no, it's never too late to do that. Well, I love the topic, and thank you for joining us. You're a very wise man. So I appreciate your time, David. So, Brian, how do people get a hold of you? Well, if somebody is thinking about investing into some real estate, we're never too busy for your phone call. You can call us directly at 780-464-0075 or find us on the internet under macintoshgroup.ca. David, thanks for your time. Brent, thanks for your time. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm Brent Griffiths. He's Brent McIntosh. And we'll see you next time. 